Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. And I'm Bill Nygut. Glad to have you with us for today's show. Uh, exciting day because... Um, it's been since yesterday early morning that we learned that Stacey Abrams was not going to run for Senate. But as many of you who listen to the show regularly know, yesterday we had already uh, planned a special edition of Political Rewind where we talked about the opioid crisis. So one of the things I'm excited about today is we got the perfect panel to talk about where we're heading next in this uh, Stacey Abrams-less U.S. Senate race, among many other topics on today's show. Greg Bluestein, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us. Uh, he interviewed Stacey Abrams and got uh, her comments on why she's decided not to make the race. Thanks for being here, Greg. Glad to be here. Uh, right next to you, Howard Franklin, Democratic strategist, government relations <laughs> expert at I always the love it when Capitol. you say that. <laughs> Glad to be here as it's well. It's true, isn't it? It is true. It is true. Hey, are you lining up as a consultant candidate for the 2020 cycle? You know, Todd and I were talking about that. I, I think I'm, I'm still taking a mental breather from coming and out of the legislative session? session. Was it a tough session for you, It Howard? wasn't tough. It just was death by a thousand cuts. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds pretty tough. <laughs> All right. Well, we want to know when you start lining up for clients. Sure. Uh, same with you, Todd Ream, Republican strategist and the uh, daily editor of GeorgiaPundit.com. And as if it isn't enough incentive to go to Georgia Pundit to see all the political news that Todd posts, the dog pictures are the just Todd <laughs> is one of the people who is truly concerned about finding homes for dogs that are homeless and you, you, you know, I love the fact that when I go to Georgia Pundit, it's the dogs I see first, Todd. And, and what I've learned is <laughs> when, when I first started it, I thought that that was going to be something the political people complained about. <laughs> yeah. And what I've learned is that's by far the most popular thing I do. Well, for goodness sake, we all need something a little warm and fuzzy before we d dig into the political news on any given day. And, and dogs are entirely bipartisan, though I sometimes have suspicions about my own. <laughs> <laughs> you lining up any candidates for 2020? Uh, I'm seriously considering uh, retiring from oh, political campaigns. It's good been for a, you. It's been a good run, and uh, I'm going to take a few months and, and sort of uh, explore my own head. Wow. That sounds good. Amy Steigerwald is with us. She uh, uh, teaches political science at uh, Georgia State University. She oversees the interns program at the uh, state capitol, and you've been doing that for this last semester with your students who are staffing in internship jobs, legislators down there, right? Yes, and for upcoming rising juniors and seniors who might be thinking about it, it's a pretty amazing experience. How they, do they? Oh, well, that's okay. So tell us, how do they? If they if they have parents listening right now, or if they're listening? exactly if they're listening, or they have parents listening, uh, applications will be due uh, sort of beginning to mid October, and we do interviews in November. All right, so they got they've got some they've time. got some time. There will right. be this summer, uh, probably sometime in August, we'll do an info session actually down at the Capitol. So one of the things I was going to say to you after Todd said he was thinking about taking a break for politics is uh, I always love hearing my friends, and I think of you all as my friends, uh, when my friends say they're getting out of politics, at least out of the campaigning side, because it means maybe they'll finally go out and make some real money. Instead. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's get going on uh, the U.S. Senate race here in Georgia. Let's start very quickly, Greg. You talked to Stacey Abrams, I believe. She did a round of brief interviews on Monday night, um, embargoed till the next morning. So it wasn't until about 8 o'clock in the morning that mm -hmm. news organizations were supposed to at least quote what she had to say. But word was leaking out from other Democratic sources, including Chuck Schumer's office. Yeah, word started leaking out last week, to be honest. Um, and then um, on Monday, it was Chuck Schumer's office that sort of let, let fly the word that she had formally called him. And I don't think it was any surprise to anyone that she wasn't going to run for Senate, anyone in Washington or in Georgia Democratic circles. But she called him and let him know, too. And once that was out there, um, the national media got a hold of it as well. Um, all right. So 
give us a quick little look at what did Stacey Abrams tell you? And then we're going to play a little <clears throat> bit of uh, what she said to Stephen Fowler, the GPB reporter who talked to her as well. But what did you learn? Oh, I asked her to walk through her thought process. And she said essentially what she said all along, which is that politicians should not be a fungible thing. You should, you should go into these offices thinking about what you really want to accomplish. You shouldn't just run for any office just because it's an open office. She's always been more executive minded, even though she was in the state legislature. I asked her how she kind of grappled with that. And she said, well, listen, I mean, when I was in the state legislature, I really enjoyed being the minority leader because that was an ex- she saw that as more executive. She, she was able she was the leader of a caucus while she was in the state house. So I asked the, the other telling thing is I asked her if she thought she's worried that she could miss a moment because three years from now. If she decides to run for governor, who knows what the climate will be. But right now, the climate is what it is, um, which is a very competitive one for Democrats. And she says, no, not, not, I'm not worried about that at all, because this is a job I don't want. Let's listen just to a few, uh, uh, some portion of uh, Stephen Fowler's uh, story, which he filed after talking to Abrams. No matter what I do, I ask myself three questions. What do I want? Why do I want it? And how do I get it? Abrams said what she wants now is to continue working on issues like voting rights and accurate census counts in Georgia and across the country. So for now, that means... Not standing for an office, that is not the right fit for me. And so I've declined to run for the U.S. Senate. The next time there's an election, regardless of who is the victor, there needs to be confidence in the integrity of our system, and that confidence does not currently exist. So, Todd Ream, is this good news, do you think, as a Republican for David Perdue to not have Stacey Abrams, who presumably would have been a very formidable candidate against him? I, I was talking to a number of folks uh in the Purdue camp, and they were looking forward to this. Um, part of it was a, you know, let's just get this done and retire her for good. Um, but I have learned, one of the things that I've learned, and I I largely learned it in the old uh, Political Rewind studio, is not to underestimate uh, Stacey Abrams, because when I thought she didn't do in 2014 what she set out to do, and when I thought in 2016 that she didn't accomplish it, I didn't realize that she doesn't think of time the way most of us in professional politics or electoral politics do, which is always the next campaign and nothing else. And she had clearly a six to eight year plan then. I think she's working a six to eight year plan now. And if you are at if you are one of the national democratic uh, activists leadership, what you want more than anything else is Stacey Abrams trying to bring Georgia into the Democratic fold in the presidential race because there's nobody else who can who has the strength in, in the electorate as she does. And if I were trying to talk her into do that, doing that and she said, y'all just watch me. I'm going to do this my own way. I've learned about her. Just watch her. And, and she will she will change a lot of folks' minds about what's possible. So I don't think this means she's out. I don't think this means she's out of the 2020 race in Georgia. I think it'll it'll be a different Stacey Abrams role. Yeah, a- Amy, it is refreshing uh, because she said to, to uh, Stephen what Greg basically said she said to him, which is, uh, I don't just run for an office because it's available. And there's a refreshing uh, sort of aspect mm-hmm. to that, that she's just not opportunistically saying, oh, if I can be the next senator, the next governor, the next member of the congressional district I live in, it, what Todd says is correct. Not only does she have a longer range plan, but she's thoughtful about which office she believes she is best suited for. And I assume uh, the office in which she imagines her talents will be uh, most uh welcomed by the people of the state, in which he can do the most good. No, I think that's very true. I mean, I completely agree with everything that Todd said, and I think that it's important to note that, as you said, she's thoughtful about all of it, right? She's not just making sort of see-the-pants decisions. It's not just, well, this is the sort of clamor that's going on. And in part, she's trying to figure out, number one, do I, in in fact, want to do this? And what are my sort of long-term goals? And I think it's important that she keeps also talking about how important to her the issues of the census count and also voting access in Georgia are, that these are not just sort of one-off policy things for her that she brought up during the election. 
situation, right? They are very real things that she wants to see accomplished. And I think also she sees this as a time where I can get this done, right? Or this is this is a time that we can capitalize on this, and I'm invested in this, so I want to see it through. So, Howard, we're saying complimentary things about Abrams uh, right now. You know, even Todd, the Republican at the table right now, is. But but there is a there is a pragmatic side of this. I think um, David Perdue is going to be a formidable candidate in 2020. I assume he's going to have President Trump at the top of the ticket. He's been loyal to the president. His strength in the state will depend on how Georgians are feeling about the president at the time. Clearly. Um, but he does strike me as a guy who's going to be a very difficult ca- candidate to beat. Stacey Evans really couldn't afford to get into a race and lose a second statewide contest for her political future, could she? I don't know that I look at it quite that way. I think now that another person, uh, and since Todd lavished all this praise on Stacey Abrams, I guess I feel required to do the same thing uh, for Brian Kemp in this case, right? Brian Kemp was certainly counted out the underdog, was not expected to be governor just a year ago. And just as formidable is a junior senator who has aligned himself with a lightning rod of a president who could or could not be popular uh, by the time 2020 rolls around, who could or could not be besieged by members of his own party or under some other you know political or, or legal duress. I think we've we've also got a governor who proved a lot of people wrong who won a, a close election but certainly outperformed the expectations that were assigned to him uh, from the start of this political campaign. So I think they both were going to be tough outs, if that's what you mean. I don't think that uh, one is necessarily more than the other. And I think it, it's in politics, uh, just as Todd said, I mean, a, a year, it could be an eternity. A guy who looks super yeah. strong today could be on his last leg, you know, 16, 18 months from now. And we don't know what that climate's going to be like in 2022. What we do know is that the the field, the Democratic field, would have cleared for Stacey Abrams had she run next year. We, the only candidate in the race um, former Columbus Mayor Teresa Tomlinson said she's only running if, if Stacey. I, you know, you guys, I, I agree with you, but let's let's not forget uh, my good friend whose campaign also worked on. We cleared a, a, a Democratic primary field for Jason Carter. So who's to say that the Democrat who's gotten the most votes of anybody's ever put their name on the ballot wouldn't be able to say I need this field clear again or put somebody up against me and I'll run and I'll win, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, I think either of those is possible. I think if you've done what Stacey Abrams has done, you're not afraid of what possibly could be lurking around the corner, right? You guys didn't think I could do this, and I did it. I got much closer than you thought I'd ever get. I, nothing you guys could you know, could worry about for me would scare me out to making a different yeah. decision. And, and, and I want to follow up on something Howard said. If my personal preference as a consultant is... I like my clients to have primaries. You got to get warmed up and you got to get game face on. And there's no better way to do that than to fight your way through a primary. It makes a stronger general election candidate to have to walk over somebody else's body. So I prefer not to have 20 people in the primary. Why, why it's fascinating for you to as, hear? Well, as a political scientist, because, of course, the way that a lot of times you hear it discussed sort of differently is that it causes you to have to worry, right, about the things. You have to uh, raise a separate sum of money, right? Potentially you have voter fatigue. And so it's sort of – I. This is why I love being on here that I get to learn. <laughs> we heard all those things uh, when it was Stacy versus Stacy a, a year and a yeah. half ago. We heard all, you know, and who's going to bring the party Kim. back together? Yeah. Exactly. You know, can we're going to waste all? The, I, and I, to be honest, I was saying some of them. I was saying, hey, Stacy Evans, I, I think Stacy Abrams has probably earned the right to be our nominee. We don't need a, a costly and expensive fight. And I don't think I don't think she would have done any better had she not had the primary in the first. Yeah, Greg, I think that's right. Oh, I'm sorry. It, is Chuck Schumer the real loser here? I mean, he courted her uh, ardently with a passion to get her into this race to try to make that a seat that he could take mm-hmm. back from the Republicans, hope to take control of the Senate. It and, and there's a lot of talk that, you know, he enticed her by giving her the response to the president for the State of the Union. So I, on one hand, it feels like it is a loss and that Schumer is hurt by this. On the other hand... It certainly doesn't hurt the National Democratic Party to have a Stacey Abrams 
regardless of whether she's running for senator or not, now as a strong, strong figure in the party, right? Yeah, a strong figure, but uh, as you said, not on the ballot. Um, right. And I think it is. I mean, Republicans are casting this as another epic, embarrassing fail yeah. for Chuck Schumer, because right. she's the latest of a string of candidates he's tried to recruit who are either staying out of this race, uh, out of the Senate races in 2020, or running for president. And there's many, many of these senators um, who could be running for, for uh, these candidates who could be running for Senate who are instead running... Um, uh, for the White House, um, so it is, and there's no, there's no question. You see the Republican um, response to to the news that Stacey Abrams is out of the race, and they're saying basically it's a second tier, of JV squad, that kind of talk. And in a sense, I mean, we that Stacey Abrams is the top recruit. She was head and shoulders, the, by far the best known figure. The other candidates can make a case, and by this point next year, we might be hearing way too much, and their, their name IDs could be soaring. But at this stage, um, you, when you lost the top recruit, it's definitely a blow. I, you know, I don't—I <laughs> totally agree with some of what— uh, has been said about where the politics starts, but you know this is not an embarrassment for Chuck Schumer. A lot of politicians looking at the the president in the last two years see an opportunity to present themselves as a foil to Donald Trump. So I, I don't, I can't be too upset that they said, "Hey, I, I think I could see myself in the White House as easily as I could see myself as a member of the August body of the Senate." And let me just also say there is a silver lining, and that is you're not going to find a more well-known, um, another able-bodied person who can raise uh, enthusiasm and dollars to actually address some of the systemic issues to putting Georgia into play as a battleground state in earnest, right? So, yes, she could do that for two years, potentially, as a candidate for U.S. Senate, but she could do it for much, much longer if she's able to get these organizations riled up and, and, and set up so they can do that important work. All right. So I want to give each of you a shot at this, and Howard, as long as you have the ball, you start. Uh, should Abrams and will Abrams, in fact, she's hinted at becoming a candidate for president. Is that, from from your perspective, a good idea? Is it real? What 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 is the sense that all of you have about that? I, you know, my personal opinion is that twenty Democrats is already too many to run for president. <laughs> uh, I, I, having worked for her at the state legislature, I think. What you guys said is spot on. She has an executive presence. I think as minority leader, she ran an organization. I see her getting Georgia's uh, voting uh, conversation where it needs to go. Obviously, you guys are aware we're replacing 18-year-old voting machines in the next year. I think she's going to address that with all the fervor. We've seen her run for other offices and lead uh, legislative fights and then prepare uh, to do battle in 2022. Todd, what would you advise her if you were uh, working with her? I don't labor under the assumption that she really listens to my advice or, or <laughs> well, would listen let's to my advice. Believe. But but I, I will say this: I will say this that she is in uh, the catbird seat uh, for going forward. If she puts her organizations to work in 2020, and if she were able to switch Georgia into the Democratic column, she's got her pick of jobs for what. Are what she is saying today are her priorities: voting rights, um, immigration issues, census stuff. If if you told me that that she were aiming for attorney general yeah. under a Democratic uh, administration or assistant attorney general uh, for the voting rights division or Supreme Court of the United States, none of those are outside of her grasp. If she is the linchpin to a Democratic map. In, in 2020. Georgia. Yeah, and, I mean. and so I think she plays the long game as well as anybody I've seen in this life. Wow. And I don't know what she's going to do. I expect her to do a, a heck of a job getting herself there. Amy? I obviously have no insights into what she is like personally thinking. It seems to me, though, much like Todd was saying, that there's a focus on the policy measures right now. I think that she sees those as a long term commitment of something to get done. Um, I also think at this point that sort of much of what Howard was saying, that you lose a little bit of, you know, anybody else entering into the field at this point on the Democratic side. Right. It's we've it's become it's it's sort of oversaturated. You're going to have a really big hurdle to overcome to hit that threshold, to even hit the debates, especially with the money that's already been put out. And so I think that causes of concern there. But I think the other part is that and I think Todd sort of hits on this. I mean, 
I don't know, in fact, what she's thinking of and what it is that the job, what the job is that she actually really, really wants. But it's very clear she's got a good plan to get there. And she's been very successful so far in getting to where she wants to be. Greg, I'll give you the last word on this before the break. What's your sense of where she's headed next? Has she given any hints at all? I mean, she keeps saying I haven't ruled out running for president, but has there been anything more than that? No. um, In a sense, look, the the race for governor has not really ever ended. There, there are days where I start the day with going to a Governor Kemp event and end it going to a Stacey Abrams event. Um, I think she's telegraphed and she's made no no hints, I mean, no bones about it. She she wants to, wants to be governor one day. If at this point next year, and this is likely, she'll be talked about as a potential VP candidate, uh, she'll, she has, has some role on the ticket, um, maybe a cabinet post if a Democrat wins, but but I think if you're her right now, your your goal is is running for governor. Okay, let's do this. Let's get uh, our first break of the show out of the way. When we come back, let's talk about what that means for the Senate race. We know David Perdue is going to be presumably the unchallenged uh, Republican. He'll have the field to himself. I mean, who knows? There could be somebody who decides to jump in and primary him, but it's not going to be particularly realistic, I would imagine. Uh, so let's talk about who else might fill this void. Teresa Tomlinson is the first to say officially she's in the race. We'll talk about that and more when we come back on Political Rewind. Hi, I'm Burt Wesley Huffman, Senior Vice President and Chief Development Officer at GPB. We've been hearing from listeners across the state of Georgia and beyond thanking us for launching GPB's Stealth Drive, this new, less intrusive approach to fundraising that you've been hearing about. We hope that you would appreciate getting all the programming and less fundraising so much that you'd support GPB in the same way you would during a traditional drive. Well, here's where we are. We're past the halfway mark in terms of the days of the drive. However, we've not yet reached the halfway mark in terms of the critical funding that sustains the programs you expect and enjoy on GPB. If you haven't done your part yet, now is the time. Join in the effort to keep GPB and the services we provide for you and communities across the state going strong. Donate online at gpb.org or call 800-222-4788. And if we've already heard from you, Thank you. Several weeks ago on Political Rewind, as a matter of fact, Teresa Tomlinson, who was a frequent panelist on this show over the last few years, uh, said she was, in fact, forming an exploratory committee to run for the United States Senate. You all know that already. And there was a big caveat, which we talked about, Amy, repeatedly, this kind of uncomfortable, awkward comma in the headline of her press release, Teresa Tomlinson is running for Senate, comma, if If. Stacey Abrams does it. Well, this morning, after hearing the news about Stacey Abrams the other night, Teresa Tomlinson released a video declaring she is officially in the race. This is just a little of what she says in that video. The key to whether government is a tool for opportunity or a weight around your neck is who is running it. Creating a government that is a framework for prosperity requires leaders who understand it and know how to lead it. I'm running for U.S. Senate in 2020 because I have spent my life ensuring that government makes a positive difference in yours. Governing is a job that I love and one that I'm good at. In my two terms as mayor of Columbus, Georgia, our city was ranked one of the 25 best-run cities in America. It's time to bring the same smart, pragmatic, effective government to Washington, D.C., without all the crazy in the mean. So that's just a part of the official announcement by Teresa Tomlinson. You know, Tomlinson, of course, as I said, has been on this show many times. And I think most uh, people who listen to the show know that she's clearly smart and thoughtful about politics. She had a good career as mayor of Columbus. I think she accomplished a lot, and she'll talk about that. But, you know, Todd, as I listen to that video, which goes on, it's about three minutes long, I think, I realized finding a message isn't as easy as you might think it is. I wait. She's going to talk about competence and getting things done in a world in which everybody's acting uh, in such highly partisan manners. 
But I just don't know what the message is going to be for anyone like a Teresa Tomlinson who comes into this race. I, I think one of the challenges to a message based on competence is the fact that the Columbus government building was falling down around their heads the entire time she was in office. And now they're going to have to demolish the entire building. Um, I, I, I That suggests that competence might not be the strong suit. But I, I'm thinking more about geography at this point. I think Josh McCoon probably shows the outer limits of what a Columbus-based candidate can achieve in a statewide primary without being the fundraising leader. Um, I think that Jack Kingston in 2014 may have been the last of the real South Georgia, um, uh, you know, south of I-20 uh, candidates. I, I don't include David Perdue in that list because he sort of he he has had as much of a presence over the years in Atlanta. He had the he he inherited some of the network of his cousin. But I, I think that South Georgia's days are, are quickly waning and I think she's gonna have to put a couple million dollars in the bank to show that she can be a serious candidate. So uh, I don't know about the Columbus. You're talking about the government center in Columbus, yeah, Georgia. Okay, 10 so or 14 I, story building. Yeah, no, I understand that. But I have to acknowledge that I'm not familiar with the problems it's having. And we'll look at it and, and talk about it again on the show. Um, and I do, we don't know whether that's attributable to what happened during her tenure. It may have. I don't know. I just want to be clear that uh, I can't. Uh, in any way say, oh, yeah, I guess that's a real issue. Does that make sense? Well, I can speak to that. I mean, I, I don't know a whole lot about where the building is, uh, but I do know that she didn't build it. I don't think that the, you know, the citizens of Columbus are not going to hold her responsible. I think she is widely seen as a successful mayor. And But I hear what you're saying. I think the examples that you brought up, Todd, I think they are they are relevant. I think the thing you got to acknowledge, though, is that those are all Republican primaries, um, not necessarily Democratic primaries. And I think there are quite a few Democrats still in large cities like Columbus, Augusta, Macon, that still make up a sizable portion of the Democratic primary electorate. But I think the same things are true uh, about David Perdue that you said uh, they're also true about Teresa Thomason. She's from Atlanta. She's got plenty of relationships here that she's maintained. That's how I got to know her working on her first uh, race for mayor. She's uh, of counsel at a big law firm right down the street from where we are right now. And I think, you know, she certainly put herself out there. You, you mentioned the uh, the uncomfortable comma in that press yeah, release. Yeah. She got out there early. She put herself out there. She said, hey, it, unless Stacey wants to do this. And I think Things are start, starting to turn in her direction. She's raised, as I'm told, the better part of $300,000. Yeah. She's gotten Stacey Abrams, deputy campaign manager, on her team. She's got Joe Trippi. I think she's. I think getting out there early gives her a significant Greg, headstart. that was a really smart move. It shows us she has real savvy as a, politi- as a politician, that she positioned herself despite the awkwardness. She was ready, and it turns out she made a good bet in that sense. Well, also let her raise the money so she could hire right. all these people. Right. She told me this morning that Kendra Cotton, a longtime uh, Democratic strategist, will probably be her campaign manager. Um, she, As you mentioned, Joe Trippi, he, his firm helped Doug Jones get elected Senate next door in Alabama in 2017 to that wild special election. So it, she was able to enter this race with some heft already. And that message, you were talking about trying to decipher a message, it was essentially, to me at least, washing to dysfunction. She goes yes. into a little bit more policies about Medicaid expansion, yep. about protectionist trade tariffs. Yep. Um, uh, but it's essentially, you know, Washington isn't working. I'll help make it work. In some ways, I was struck by when we were interviewing people for our book about women in politics, that was sort of a recurring theme that especially a lot of the women talked about was either that they themselves or those they were working for feeling this need to put out their competency, to put out and show I can get things done, that I can work beyond this, that let's sort of ignore everything else. And really, at the end of the day, it's about what can we achieve and that that competency thing is, in fact, especially for someone who... um, Uh, maybe outside of political spheres, isn't going to have the same level of name recognition of trying to show, especially as a woman, that, yes, I can handle this because that bar is much higher for voters to see for women candidates than for male candidates. There's a ton of studies that show that, that that even if you give the same list of qualifications, when you change the name from female to male, the uh, level, how they'll rate them changes. 
And so I, on some level, am not totally surprised that it's starting out with this of, no, I deserve to be here. Yeah, I, I'm glad, Greg, you pointed out that in the long video, in the entire video, she does talk about issues. She she talks about the border. She talks about locking up children. Mm-hmm. And, all right. Uh, Sarah Riggs Amico ran for lieutenant governor on the Democratic ticket. Uh, is she in this thing? I think she will be. Um, I saw her Monday night and talked to her at length. I went to a town hall meeting right around the corner from where I live, where she was speaking at. And afterwards, she told me she's very seriously considering it. Asked her what her message might be. She said two things. She said she would want to finish the work that she and Stacey Abrams did last year. She was on the uh, the same ballot as Stacey Abrams as the LG candidate. And she said, and this might be a knock at Tomlinson, but she said the message should not be all about government dysfunction. The message should be about how government dysfunction is affecting everyday Georgians. All right. So uh, that'll be we'll interesting see. to watch. How are the, um, we hear, you know, John Ossoff's name comes up. I don't know if that's because he's telling people he might be thinking <laughs> about it or because it's a natural thing to think, oh, he came close in the 6th Congressional District. I think right? he's letting people know that he's interested. In he it. is. Okay. See, good. Thank you for saying that. Um, Michelle Nunn seems like she, she's doing so much at care right now. It would be surprising to imagine her stepping down from a job as head of an important position. But Raphael Warnock, the pastor at Ebenezer Baptist, his name keeps coming up. And among other reasons, it probably does because after what Stacey Abrams did to energize more liberal Democrats in the governor's race and African-American voters, it's interesting to imagine a Democratic primary race without a strong African-American candidate. Yeah, I, I imagine at some point we'll see, you know, some of these folks stepping forward. Um, you know, but one thing I think we got to be really careful of when Stacey Abrams decided that she wanted to run and she wanted to do it her way. A lot of naysayers came to her and said, hey, we've got a model for electing uh, Democrats in states like Georgia. And if you can't hew to that model, then you're probably not going to be successful. Lo and behold, she gets more votes than anybody else. She, you know, I think she certainly uh, drops a stake in the ground and shows she can't be successful. And now we're saying, well, if you can't do what Stacey Abrams did, then you can't be successful, right? I, you know, I, I think there's certainly pattern recognition and pattern bias. And, and, and we got to be careful about it because politics is like basketball. It's about matchups. It's not just one way to skin a cat, right? right. And I think we got to be really careful. All right. Uh, I, we've spent a lot of time on the Senate race. I'd love to move on to a few other items in the news that are important. Uh, Todd Ream, one of them is we continue to watch this standoff between the Trump White House and the Democrats in the Senate right now over relief, emergency relief money for farmers hit by Hurricane Michael, Puerto Rico, and the amount of money that the the uh, Democrats believe Puerto Rico needs right now is, is standing in the way. And w- let's listen... You know, Isaacson and Purdue are working hard, and they're Purdue even more than Isaacson, really on the line over getting something done on this. They held a joint news conference yesterday, and while it would have been nice had they decided they were doing it because there was some breakthrough, what became clear relatively quickly is they are reminding Georgians they really are trying to do something. Let's listen. We're not here today to talk about an agricultural disaster. We're not here to talk about a hurricane. We're not here to talk about a storm. We're not talking about fire. We're talking about a disastrous failure of the government of the United States of America to respond to the needs of its people. That's a terrible indictment because we're in the Congress. We're part of the bus driving this, this whole thing. But because of various reasons, some known and some unknown, we've been unable to move now for almost three-quarters of a year. That's two cycles in many of the crops that have been damaged that we'll never get back. You know, when you have an ag- agricultural destruction, once that crop's gone, it is gone. And when it takes trees out, you're not talking about a cycle that's a 12-month cycle. You're talking about a cycle that's a 14- to 18-year cycle in terms of maturity of those trees. This uh, Hurricane Michael hit exactly in the week, literally the week of harvest for a number of major crops. And it totally destroyed much of the Georgia economic uh, engine called agriculture uh, this past fall. Now, what does that mean? That means today many farmers in Georgia are specifically coming to the end of their second and some third round of bridge loans through local banks. And the local banks need some kind of uh, encouragement from the federal government to, to say, hey, we're going to be there for you. It's time to get this done. 
We heard Johnny Isaacson first and then David Perdue. Todd, it's so easy to reduce things like this to their partisan political uh, components and to say, oh, who's winning? Who's losing? Is it the Trump White House? Is it the Democrat? But the reality is who's losing are the farmers of South Georgia. Well, and, and one of the issues that we have in Georgia is that we've sort of decoupled uh, so much of the Georgia population from a direct exposure to agriculture. Uh, in 2014, in Gainesville at the at the debate for U.S. Senate, I asked all the candidates if they would have voted for the, the, the farm bill that was pending at the time, and only one of them said he would have, mm. uh, and that was Jack Kingston, who was from that area. But if you get involved in government in Georgia, you quickly begin to have a new understanding yeah. of the importance of agriculture. Um, and the problem is that it's just not a, it's not a sexy issue for anybody whose main goals are trying to get on, you know, CNN or MSNBC or Fox News. But it is it is absolutely a life and death issue for communities in Georgia. Um, I was down in in. Uh, Richland, Georgia, this past weekend, and they've got some good news in their economic development there. But f- for those of y'all who haven't gotten off 75 or 185 um, in and driven out into the middle of rural Georgia in the agricultural areas, it is it is shockingly different from what you think of Georgia when you're inside the perimeter. Yeah, I got to tell you, if you haven't stood in the middle of a watermelon field. In mid-July, when the temperature is 99 degrees and you're out there with the farmer, which I did on a couple of occasions as a reporter at Channel 2, you just haven't lived. <laughs> uh, Greg, it is partisan politics, um, and the and the farmers are the victims. It's, it, it's hard for me to see how anybody on either side is coming across in a positive light for Georgia voters with this. No, and, and, and you said we want to shift away from the Senate race, but certainly this will be a big factor in the Senate campaign. Already you've heard Mayor Tomlinson attack Senator Perdue over the fact that even with the full backing of the White House and support from and, and strong allegiance and ties to Donald Trump, that this bill isn't going anywhere. And, and there's just finger pointing. And then you've heard the same from, from Republicans, including Governor Kemp, blaming Democrats for this inaction. And, and if you look at the last, say, six to eight weeks of the of the gubernatorial campaign last year, I'm not sure Brian Kemp got north of, of I-20 yeah. except to go home to Athens to get a change of clothes. Um, um, and so this this is hitting in areas that have have become increasingly important mm-hmm. in statewide politics in in uh, the Georgia Republican. Yeah, party. I think that's a really important point. Yeah. You know, Howard, uh, Stacey Abrams did get down there uh, to, to, to she went down there a bit to see storm damage and all. But Brian Kemp, <clears throat> he really was there. The farmers realized he was there. It seems to me that was he was going to win a lot of, most of those votes anyway, but he assured they'd go out to the polls. Yeah, you know, I credit him going down there. I, you know, I want to acknowledge my candidate did get to all 159 counties, but she was also busy turning Gwinnett County blue, right. turning Cobb County yeah. blue. You know, the, some of the biggest vote centers Republicans statewide for the last two or three decades. But I, I totally hear what you're saying. I mean, the state's seven hours to drive top to bottom, and you got to decide how to deploy resources. It'll be a, a similar question uh, that Teresa Tomlinson or, or other Democratic candidates will have to figure out as they prepare to run for the seat. And I, I think David will have to do the same. He'll have to decide, you know, this was this was a race that was won by the whiskers. Can you afford uh, to leave the metro Atlanta suburbs yeah. uh, all alone and hope to eke out a victory in uh, the hinterland? And I think that answer is going to be no. <laughs> you already see his poll numbers higher, not not hugely higher, but but higher than 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 um, Brian Kemp's in the in metro Atlanta suburbs. And his his campaign strategists have telegraphed to us very clearly that they are not going to ignore the metro Atlanta suburbs. All right, you got a word on this? We got to move on, Amy. I leave it to you. I hope something is done soon. <laughs> I, no, I mean it's a huge, You're it's right. a huge deal. Uh, you know, it's a interesting commentary about this is one of those right. There are certain issues where, in fact, right government is helpful because of the scale to be able to come in and need the backing, and we need there to be aid given to the farmers in Georgia. Right. I mean, it's a problem. Todd, last quick comment. One of the one of the Facebook viewers asked about whether uh, the the state government could do some sort of a farmer bailout, and the problem with that is. That that the General Assembly wrapped and and the uh, FY uh, 
budget is signed, it would take a new legislative session uh, either next year's or a special session to do yeah, anything. And they did do one this past year that wasn't enough, but at least was some Dropping to get bucket. in there. The thing about this, yeah. $3 billion is what the estimates have been. That's yeah. the state's, that's more than the state's entire rainy day fund. So exactly. um, the state can give a little bit of help, but it's, it's up to the federal government to give this type yeah. of time. Um, let's, let's talk, we got to get to a break, but you know, before the break, um, Todd Reem, I want to start with you on this because because a woman who many of us have known in Georgia Republican politics for decades has emerged after a very contentious NRA uh, convention as the new president of the National Rifle Association, Carolyn Meadows. Now, we know the president's job at NRA is largely ceremonial. I think the president presides over meetings of the board. It's really Wayne LaPierre who runs the organization day to day. But Carolyn Meadows has been out there. She was a Republican National Committee woman, uh, Todd. She was an active, she helped move that party, I think, to the right in many ways. Those of us who cover, have covered politics or worked in politics have known her for a very long time. And she's like, I think in her 80s at this point, yeah? I, I'm certain she could be no older than me. She's got to be in her, she must still be in her 40s. Uh, what, what I will say is this, one of the things that I was interested to see was, was uh, I think it was Greg who uh, reported that um, she is prioritizing the 6th District of Georgia. That's what's so interesting. I love the story. One, yeah. of the, one of the consistent deficits that the Republican Party has had against the Democratic Party is warm bodies to throw at a problem. In the John Ossoff, uh, Karen Handel race, you could not drive down a Brookhaven street without running down six or seven uh, people who were paid campaigners. The problem with Republicans is we haven't built out the the type of organizational infrastructure um, that the, that some of the Democratic candidates and, and organizations can tap into. If this means that she is able to communicate with NRA members and to help develop a group of warm bodies to go out there, uh, knock on doors, talk to neighbors in the 6th and 7th districts. That could be the biggest thing to happen. And in let's Georgia make Republican clear politics. exactly what Todd is referring yeah. to. Carolyn Meadows said after being elected the president of NRA that one of her highest priorities initially will be to get Lucy McBeth her congresswoman yeah, I was to say. <laughs> out of office because Macbeth, of course, has been a strong advocate for uh, gun yeah, uh, safety, gun control measures. My colleague Chris Quinn was the one who actually reported this, but one of the facts we, we, we found really quickly in looking up Carolyn's address is, yeah, she lives in the 6th <laughs> District. So one of the strongest champions for, for gun control is the representative for the NRA's new permanent a president. Amy, one of the things I like about what Todd said is that on this show just the other day, uh, we talked, as we have on other occasions, about the fact what he's saying is true. Democrats won in large measure that sixth district because they sent canvassers out into every apartment, every apartment complex, every apartment in the complex to knock on doors and turn people out. And that's what Todd's talking about here, this army that they mobilized to turn out and vote for a Lucy McBath. No, I think it's very true. I mean, at the end of the day, turnout is what matters. It's not what the polls say. It's not how people are sort of responding to things. It's who actually votes either in early voting or on Election Day. And we saw a lot of that sort of person-to-person -person, uh, ground contact really affecting it. I mean, the other thing that might also happen here is that it sort of sounds as though we're facing really kind of the center of the really strong debates that are going about gun control are going to be centered now around Georgia if, and around the 6th District at a time that it could it's going to be really interesting. I, that's so right. The 6th District will once again be a major player in national news. You know, I, I can't see my way clear to a, a strategy where Republicans uh, send NRA volunteers into a into a you know, a suburban district where the swing voters are white women who have children who care about school shootings and expect to come out with more votes than they went in with. I, but, I don't but, think that's but, I don't think that's a winning strategy by any stretch. And let me just say, this isn't what Democrats did uh, in Ossoff's special election and in, in Stacey's uh, race as well. Wasn't just pay a bunch of people. I have a bunch of friends who are armchair pundits who didn't get paid a dime who were interested because this was the in Ossoff's 
case, the only special election, the only race going on at the time, and they saw an opportunity to, to take back a seat that had been held for quite a long time. Right. Todd, a quick response, and then, Greg, you get the final word before our break. I, I, I don't know the last time Howard's been in the suburbs, but NRA <laughs> members are everywhere, and when they come to speak to these voters, it's going to be their neighbors, it's going to be their fellow church members, it's going to be the people they know from PTA meetings and from the soccer fields on, on Saturday mornings. It's not going to be a bunch of hillbillies from, you know, and from, be talking from outside about of the suburbs. And right. the suburbs. They're, well, they're going to be talking about the importance of good leadership. Greg, yeah. you get the last word. The other hard truth, though, for the NRA is that their clout is diminishing, is, is waning in Georgia politics, because, especially in Republican politics, because they're being sort of supplanted by other groups, Georgia gun owners, Georgia carry, they're even more strident when it comes to, to gun issues. And you could see that even last year when they endorsed Casey Cagle in the primary and it had no effect whatsoever. So what, but all right, I got to get to the break. Uh, so I'm going to make a point for you, Todd. I think what we're all not hearing Todd say is he believes NRA will deliver boots on the ground to go out and knock on doors. We'll see if in fact that happens in that race. In any case, Amy, you make the point. This is going to be ground zero for the debate over guns in the 2020 uh, elections. All right, let's get our final break of the show out of the way, and we'll come back with more in a minute. Here's how to support GPB and enjoy Georgia's beautiful state parks. Donate $15 a month and select a Friends of Georgia State Parks membership as your thank you gift. You'll receive an annual park pass, a free night of camping, discounted greens fees, and admission to historic sites and more. We have a limited number of these Georgia State Parks memberships, and they're going fast. So donate now at gpb.org or 800-222-4788. And thanks. On the next Fresh Air, how oligarchs, kleptocrats, and crooks hide their ill-gotten fortunes in shell companies, tax havens, and real estate. We talk with journalist Oliver Bullo, author of Moneyland, about this secretive transnational world. He runs kleptocracy tours in London of mansions bought by corrupt foreign leaders and oligarchs stashing their wealth. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org. Um, we're back. Greg Bluestein. very quickly, we'll have time to talk about this on another show in more uh, depth, but another candidacy emerged today. Brenda Lopez, member of the state legislature, the first Latina in the Georgia legislature, is now running to position herself as the first Latina in the Georgia congressional delegation up there in the 7th district she's built a she's done she's been a grassroots i you know i think like we people like us follow everybody on twitter on facebook so we see them all and brenda lopez is a ubiquitous presence with town meetings talking to her constituents that probably will serve her well although carolyn bordeaux is raising she raised more money, I think, in the first period than any other candidate kind of in the yeah. country. Yeah, no, it's going to be a really, and there's several, there's three other candidates that we yeah. know of who are already in the Democratic side, let alone the Republican side. So it's going to be a fascinating, really interesting race for one of the more diverse districts east and east of the Mississippi. There, so we've got this, uh, we've got Lynn uh, Hamrick, who is mm -hmm. uh, uh, running in this thing, the former Home Depot executive. And then... State Senator Renee Unterman. I wonder if there's anybody in the room who has any <laughs> sense of whether Renee... Oh, Todd... Maybe her you, longtime advisor. You, you're an advisor to Renee. Is Renee going to get into this thing? I, I think that what you're going to be looking for is an announcement sometime between now and the next uh, quarterly FEC reports. Uh, there's a lot of paperwork that goes into announcing a campaign. But frankly... Mitt Romney's Georgia guy's favorite candidate for the 7th District is not a good reason to hurry up your announcement. That is a nothing burger <laughs> if I've ever seen one. I think we just heard one of Renee's messages in the race. Well, the, other, the other message she tweeted, which was, um, you know, welcome to the district, essentially. From from Buckhead or something like that. But what you don't, what, what, what you guys don't always get is that this candidate has interviewed political consultants. And what do those political consultants do? They go talk to all their friends. Yeah. Um, and what what your expectations for that campaign are in terms of self-funding, I wouldn't be holding but, my breath. All right. And we'll see. And Lynn will invite Lynn uh, Hamrick to come in at some point. Uh, but you, you think 
I mean, Unterman wants to make this race. Is that a fair thing to say today, or are you not ready to say that? What, what I will say is this. Uh, I've known her for 20 years, and it's been at least 15 since I've seen her in the shape she is today to go out there and climb a mountain. Um, and so that may mean that this is the race for her. It may mean that she decides to do something completely different, but what happened in this last session has energized her in a way that I, most people didn't, didn't see. About halfway through the session, I, I told her that her losing her committee chairmanship was the best thing that ever happened to her. And I think she has come to understand that because mm -hmm. it freed her from a lot of the organizational politics that are dominated by people who are different from her. Um, and it kept her from taking a lot of arrows for decisions made by other people. And she, it, whatever she's going to do, if she decides she's going to eat an elephant, she's going to start one bite at a time, <laughs> and she will finish that meal. We will watch for that. That will. Be, she will certainly be, if she runs, a fascinating uh, uh, candidate to watch in a race, especially against uh, someone who's never run before and uh, who comes into the race uh, with uh, some self-funding, whatever mm -hmm. it might and be. And some baggage. Perhaps that as well. Uh, finally, we're not going to have time to talk about it today. We'll have to put it off to the next show. But since we mentioned it at the very beginning, um, Chris Carr has launched, Amy, an important investigation. Yeah. There are a number of states now whose attorney generals, uh, attorneys general like Chris mm -hmm. Carr, have decided that they have to make a move to investigate potential sexual abuse in the Catholic churches in their state. At a certain point, you say the church has failed repeatedly to root out as much of the problem as they have. And now Chris Carr enters that with the support of both the Catholic Archdiocese of Atlanta and the Archdiocese of Savannah. But it's a yeah. big, uh, a big undertaking. And to some extent, even though he himself is a Roman Catholic, a risky one. Um, it is. I think that the risk is in more in the sense to the church than in the sense of his yeah. policy and, and where it yeah. comes from Georgia. And yes, I mean, I think, but I think it is also one where lots of uh, similar religious institutions are realizing they've got to confront this. I mean, I actually think what I'm interested in is to see how quickly we might see a similar investigation launched with the Southern Baptist Convention, who is also struggling with a mm. recent report about uh, similar types of allegations and whether or not we'll see a sort of a similar move there. All right. We're going to watch. Todd, real quick. I, I want to note something that I, that I read in the AJC coverage, and that was that the cooperation pledged by the archbishops was, they're, they're talking about it in terms of a uh, of a third party file review. Right. And and I think I think it's going to become a lot more uncomfortable for everybody when they get into those files and then when they start talking to actual witnesses um, and and people who allege uh, personal knowledge of misdoing. All right. So the this scandal has not really come to our doorstep, except in minor ways compared to some of the other states, certainly compared to Boston. Mm -hmm. uh, and now we're going to watch to see if it unfolds here. We're out of time for today's show. Howard Franklin, Todd Ream, Amy Steigerwald, Greg Bluestein. Been a pleasure to uh, have everybody here for today's show. We're off tomorrow. Thursday's our day off. We're back on Friday at 2 o'clock with a brand new show. Eric Tannenblatt's here. Uh, Jim Galloway is here. Oh, Andra Gillespie is nice. here. And I know I'm forgetting someone, and I apologize for that. Um, Tom, do you remember who our final panelist is for Friday? Oh, Tom says don't put him on the spot. Anyhow, <laughs> it'll be a really good show. So uh, we're going to say goodbye for now. I have to tell you, Amy Steigerwald, I know you are an Atlanta United fan, a season <laughs> ticket holder. Yes. Congratulations on a win I know, it was very Saturday night. Yes. But if you're really a European football fan, a football fan, in about 10 minutes, the UEFA Champions League yep. contest between Liverpool and Barcelona. Lionel Messi, the greatest yep. soccer player probably in the history of the game, are going to be on the pitch. And that, which you can watch on TNT, is going to be a phenomenal uh, contest we, to watch unfold. We have unfold. a full messy kit, so we'll have to pull it out, and my son will put it on. We'll be all set. And Greg Bluestein just gave me a picture of him and one of his beautiful daughters at an Atlanta United match. Oh, 
Oh, on Friday, Tom Faust reminds me, we're going to tell you where we're taking our show next, the city in which we'll be uh, doing the show in front of a live audience. So join us Friday for that. I'm Bill Nygut. See you Friday at 2.